I think all of us here are, are quite well aware that over this past week, um, we've had a very obvious example, the whole world knows about it, of political evil. Russia, a big, powerful country, invaded, unprovoked, a very, very small country that was much, much weaker, a tyrant, President Putin, with massive military power at his disposal, invaded a much, much weaker nation at great cost. That means many people are dying, including many civilians, and there's a lot of suffering. And interestingly, the European continent especially, but also the whole world, has been shaken. And we too are shaken as the United States, but we're not surprised. We shouldn't be surprised as Christians, because though this doesn't come from the Bible, the thought does. You know the famous statement of Lord Acton? Actually, Lord Acton was writing to a, uh, an Anglican bishop, an Anglican bishop who, who um, believed that people in authority should be given a pass because they've got a hard job. And since they've got a hard job, you ought to give them some, you know, give them some uh, room. They, they should be allowed to do bad things. That was what the bishop said. And Lord Acton, who was not a bishop, he was a lord, he wrote this, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are always, almost always bad men. And then he went on to say that contrary to what this bishop thought, people in power should be judged more harshly, not less harshly, because they are so likely to be destroyed by power. The truth is that almost every human being, and there are exceptions, but not many, almost any human being, if you put into our hands power and money, we will be corrupted. Because there's a strange, terrible formula when you put power and money together with ego and other things, bad, bad things happen. And basically, world history is a, just a record of powerful people doing bad things, and causing many, many, many people to suffer. Now, as Regina said this morning, we're going to be going today to Daniel chapter 8, and it's not a real fun passage in the Bible. But my job as a, as a pastor is not to tell you sweet things, though I'd like to do that. That is not a pastor's job. And in fact, if a pastor does that, they ought to be fired. A pastor's job is to preach the word of God. That's our job. And when we don't do that, we, we should be fired. In fact, you have a responsibility to fire us. Anyone who stands in this place and doesn't preach the word of God, rather preaches their own opinions or the newspaper or any other such thing, is not worthy to speak in God's name. So you should judge what I do, but I'm only as effective as when I preach the word of God. But this passage today is kind of a rough one because we're going to be introduced today to one of the world's greatest power abusers, a man who massively abused his power. But he is only a shadow of one who the Bible says will come, who will be the world's greatest power abuser ever. That's still to come, thankfully. As we look back in the past at human history, we can cite the names and we would go on for hours of people in power who have abused that power. They're all types of a man who we're going to be introduced today 
whose name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And by the way, Epiphanes means a name he took to himself, a name that was put on the coins that we still have today. We can find them. He called himself, my name is God Manifest. That's my name. That was his, that's what he called himself. He was a type and a very horrible type of a human being who saw himself as godlike, and yet he was more, he was a devil. He was a horrible, evil man. We're going to be introduced to him today as Daniel prophesies of what's going to happen in the future. But as I said, he's only a shadow. He's not the real bad dude. There's one coming who is like him, but a thousand times worse. So today I hope three things happen. Number one, we as God's people will be more discerning in our selection of the leaders we follow, whether that be political leaders or leaders at work or leaders at a church. Because as you know, and as Regina brought up with the children, we're in the process of selecting a new pastor here. That takes discernment. So I hope we'll be more discerning in our selection of the leaders we follow. Secondly, I hope as a result of this look at Daniel chapter 8 today, that we'll be more sensitive to and sickened by abuses of power. Because we're going to find that as Daniel tells us about what's going to happen in the future, he's sick. He can't get out of bed. It so distresses him that he can't get out of bed. And in fact, we need to be people who, as, especially as people who call ourselves God's people, that we, we see, we're sensitive to those who abuse their power, whether it be a pastor or a boss at work or a political leader, no matter who it is, we should be sensitive to it and sickened by it because to abuse power is wrong. And of course, history is simply a, a, a long, long legend of people abusing power. That's what it is, unfortunately. And the third thing is, that I hope as a result of today, we will increasingly trust the lens of Holy Scripture. Because Holy Scripture tells us not only how we should live now, what happened, what God did in the past, but it gives us glimpses into the future. And as we seek to live our lives for Jesus Christ in this world, above all, what we will do is we will, we will look up because our hope is in Jesus. And so if you have a Bible with me, please. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Now, in Daniel, Daniel, I mean Daniel chapter 8, rather, not 9. In Daniel chapter 8, a switch happens in the book of Daniel. I've told you several times before, but perhaps you didn't catch it. Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7 is not written in the language of the Jewish people. Originally, it was written in the language of the Gentile people. That's called Aramaic. Daniel chapter 1, as well as Daniel chapter 8 through 12, are written in Hebrew. It's the only book of the Bible like this. It's written in two different languages originally, because Daniel obviously spoke both languages. When it is written in Hebrew, the primary audience is the Jewish people, God's people. Secondarily, we are the audience. But, in chapters 2 through 7, written in Aramaic, that is primarily for the Gentile people, not the Jewish people. But now that we come to chapter 8, the primary audience of this that Daniel writes is God's people, the people of the Jewish people. 
Now, in this chapter, um, Daniel's going to talk about animals again. (laughs) It's not because he likes animals so much necessarily, but because God gives him visions that are animal-ish. And remember last time we talked, uh, we, we talked about animals that look like bears and lions and leopards and dragons or whatever else they may be. But today we're going to begin by being introduced to a ram and a goat. So Daniel chapter one, uh, chapter eight, verse one. This is the prologue, the beginning of this chapter. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, said it many times, and I will never stop until I die, I hope. The Bible is primarily a history book. History has dates. The Bible is very different than any other kind of religious writings because they're buy-in-the-sky stuff of people who float around the earth and do all kinds of crazy things, or somebody who gets a vision says they got it from God. Nice. But the Bible is primarily linked to history. These are things that happened on this planet with real people in real places in real time. That's why God gives dates. And so we know exactly when this took place, around 550 BC. And we know who the the, the king is, King Belshazzar. He's the last king of the Babylonian Empire before they are conquered by the Persians. I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had previously had already appeared to me. Now remember, Daniel is not in chronological order. The book doesn't go in chronological order. So he's going back now before, because remember in chapter um, 6, Daniel in the lion's den, he is roughly 81 years old when that happens. Now we're going back about 10 years. He's about 70 years old. Remember, Daniel in the lion's den was under the Persian kingdom. This Daniel 8 is under the Babylonian kingdom. He tells us that. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, Susa is a a major city in Persia, which is today Iran. It was the winter palace of of the sultan, of the leaders of the country of Persia. And Susa is also the place where Esther was. Remember, Deborah just told us about the feast called Purim. Purim began, really, in Susa. That's where that wonderful Jewish feast began. And that's why we're collecting things kind of built around the theme of of, of Esther and about Purim. And, of course, it took place in Susa. So, remember, Daniel is not in Susa. He's in Babylon, but he has a dream, and in his dream and vision, he finds himself in a a, a country nearby. This is what he saw. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. But one of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. Now, we're going to find later in the chapter, we know exactly who that is and what's going on there. That that ram with the two horns is the Medo-Persian kingdom. Originally, the Medes were a more powerful nation than the Persians. 
But they linked arms together, and when they did so, the Persian leaders grew much, much stronger than the Mede Persians. Mede part. So it was Medo-Persia, but eventually it became really Persia without the Medes. And the great king of the Persian kingdom was Cyrus the Great. And this, these two horns, one of them started out smaller, but it became larger than the other. And it started charging in three directions. It charged to the west, and it charged to the north, and it charged to the south. When it went north, it conquered what was then called Lydia. When it went to the south, it conquered what, was, what is Egypt. And when it went to the west, it conquered Babylon. It didn't go to the east because if it went to the east, it would go toward India. And so now this, this great ram started charging and nothing could stop it. The Persian empire grew and grew and grew. And finally, it was stopped at Greece in Europe and over toward India. Now in God's sovereignty, because remember, part of our job as human beings who call ourselves Christians is to try to see things not from the perspective that you get on CNN or Fox, though that might be important, but also to try to figure out what is God doing? What's God up to? So what was God up to with the Persian kingdom? God, the Bible says that God raises up kingdoms and puts them down. What was he up to? Well, we know what he was up to. God was up to bringing in the Persian great King Cyrus the Great, who when he came to power, guess what he did? He issued a decree that the Jewish people who had been in exile for, four, for 70 years could now go back home. Oh, what good news. And God also during this time raised up a man in the Persian kingdom who was Jewish named Ezra and another man named Zerubbabel. And they went back into to Israel and rebuilt the temple. And another man who served as the cupbearer of the Persian king, he was able to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And another one who was a woman, who was a Jewish woman, married the Persian king Xerxes, and she was able to save her whole people. That's where Purim, the festival, comes out of. And so what was God doing? God was using the Persian kingdom to advance his plan to protect and use his people throughout the world. But that's not the end of the story, because now here comes the goat. The next verses. This is verse 5. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. That's fast. It came toward the two-horned ram, that I had seen standing behind the canal, and it charged it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn, like a unicorn, was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, <laughs> that one is very interesting, very easy to see what's going on there. Any historian knows exactly what's going on. Anyone who reads the Bible knows this. But this is an, a, a vision God gave to Daniel in advance of it happening. This kingdom that about which he speaks, the goat kingdom, was in existence at Daniel's time, but it was not powerful. In fact, the goat kingdom, which is Greece, had been attacked 
over and over and over again by the Persians. The Persians were somewhat successful, but the Greeks repulsed them, but many, many Greek people were killed. And it stirred up in the Greek people this hatred of the Persians because time and time again at Marathon, at Thermopylae, at um, Salamis, the Persians had attacked the Greeks, killed them, killed them, killed them in the 480s and 490s BC. And so the Greeks had this deep resentment against the Persians. Well, there was a, Pers- there was a, a Greek king in a part of Greece in the north called Macedonia who became powerful, but he was murdered. And when he was murdered, his 20-year-old son took over. This 20-year-old son's name was Alexander. And he had been bred and fueled by his fury against the Persian people. And this young man at 24 years old took over the Greek army and with speed that the world has never seen until the blitzkrieg of the Nazis. He took over land in in such a fast way, it was like flying. This is in the 300s now. When he got to the Persians, he was furious. He killed them in mass, but he didn't stop there. He took over all of Babylon. He took over all of Persia. He went down and took Egypt. He went all the way to India. But when he got to India, he did it with a small army. He was against armies far bigger, but because he was such a military genius, he destroyed all of them. And finally, his soldiers said, enough. What are you going to go around the whole globe? They didn't even know there was a globe back then. They wouldn't fight anymore. So they went back to Babylon. And there at 32 years of age, because of alcoholism, as well as perhaps malaria, Alexander died. He had a couple of children. They were little. They got murdered. And so now there was a fight over what to do with this enormous empire that involved Africa and Asia, the Middle East, and part of Europe. For about 20 years, there were fights among his four generals. And finally, they split it into four parts. The big the goat was Greece. The big horn was Alexander the Great. The four horns are his four generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And so that's the story of the Greek Empire. For now from Babylon, not Greece, now from Babylon, the Greeks have taken over the world. But not with Alexander. He's dead. His generals take over. Now you might ask yourself the question, what was God doing by toppling the Persian empire and raising up the Greeks. Well, if you know Christianity, you should know one of the things he was doing. What Alexander did is he pushed the Greek language to the whole world. So by the time that Jesus came here some 300 years later, people all over the world, Jews and Gentiles, spoke Greek. So that when the New Testament was written, it was written in the language that people in many, many countries of the world could speak. It wasn't written in Hebrew or Aramaic or Persian. It was written in Greek. Why? Well, because of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, because of all his conquest, he pushed Jewish people running for their lives in all kinds of directions. He dispersed the Jewish people throughout his empire. Some of them in Africa, some of them over toward India, some of them in Europe. And of course, they spread what? The Old Testament. The knowledge that there's but one true God, a creator God, who wishes to redeem people. 
and will one day bring forth a Messiah. Now that message was pushed all over the world. Maybe that's what God was up to. Who knows? But now the bad part comes. Because as, Alex, as Daniel looks at this dream with the goat, with the one horn that's broken apart into four horns, one of those four horns is now going to be front and center. This is verse 9. Out of one of them, that's one of the four, came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw down some of the starry host to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. How long? He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now we're introduced to the hostile horn. We know who this one is as well. Remember I said the the empire of Alexander was parceled out into four? One of them is Seleucus. That dynasty took power in the present-day country of Syria. And it was out of this particular group of people. But remember, their base of operation was Syria. The name of the dynasty was Seleucus, but they're Greeks. They, They speak Greek. They're pushing Greek culture and the Greek language, though they're right north of the beautiful land, which is, of course, Israel. Well, out of the Seleucid Empire, the eighth one in line comes a leader who was not supposed to be leader. He kind of usurped the throne. He then took over and became quite a powerful, powerful leader. His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he committed what is known to the Jewish people and in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testaments, as the abomination of desolation. He had conflict with the Jewish people. And he was intent on forcing the Jewish people to become good Greeks. They resisted. They resisted so much so that he decided he was going to force the matter. And he did a whole bunch of very, very bad things. He first of all said, you cannot worship your God anymore. He abolished the worship of the Sabbath day. He said that if you you cannot circumcise your children, if you do, the mother and the child will be killed. And he killed many of them. He went into the Holy of Holies, the Holy Temple of God. And there as a king, a Gentile, he went into the Holy of Holies and he had a, a statue built to Zeus. He stole the golden lampstand. He stole the, the, the plate, the, the implements where the table of showbread was. He stole the implements from the temple and then he sacrificed a pig on the altar. That's what he did. Of course, that didn't go over well among the Jewish people. And while he did this, 
He, he persecuted and killed many, many Jewish people. I'm speaking tens of thousands. He set himself up as their God, which of course he's an idiot. He was in fact a devotee of Jupiter. And maybe he saw himself as an incarnation of the planet Jupiter. But that's what he did. And he tried to force the issue. So in a little town close to Jerusalem, he tried to force the people to follow his ways. And they refused. In this little town called Modin, a man named Matthias, Maccabeus, with his children, they killed some of the Syrian emissaries. And they began what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. We're talking about 165, 167 BC. And they carried out a guerrilla war against Antiochus IV Epiphanes. For several years, the war took. And finally, after, interestingly, 2,300 days, they ousted the Syrians and they reconstituted the temple. They rededicated it. And the date, 165 BC, when the temple was reconstituted or reconsecrated to God is the, the, the event from which we get what's called the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. That's the Jewish feast of Hanukkah. So here we have from the Persians, we have the Jewish feast of Purim. And now from Antiochus IV and the Maccabean Revolt, we have the Jewish feast of Hanukkah. Of course, Antiochus did many things. He ordered copies of the Holy Scriptures to be, to be burned. Um, he, did, um, he, he did anything he could to try to wipe out the Jewish people and their worship of the one true God. Thankfully, it didn't work. And in fact, for a period of time, the Jewish people, from around 165 B.C. to 63 B.C., the Jewish people had quasi-independence until the Romans took over in 63 B.C. So there's his dream. And what would that dream to you, do to you? <laughs> Cause you to scratch your head, probably. Because now Daniel is going to try to figure out, what does this mean? And verse 15 will tell us. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Whoa. Well, Daniel now has an encounter and he's going to have another one in, in later chapters with the great archangel Gabriel. Gabriel, um, I think, is mentioned about four times in the Bible. That's all. Very, very important times. He's the one who tells Mary and Joseph about the birth of Jesus. And he's the one who tells Daniel about the future. I guess God reserves his most important assignments for his most important angel, Gabriel. And so Gabriel comes, and Daniel, of course, is terrified. You know, when we picture angels in our culture today, they're really sweet little cherubs with fat faces and little wings. That is not from the Bible. That is such baloney. Every time you find an angel in the Bible, people are absolutely terrified. 
They're scared to death. They are not cute, and they're not, they don't have little wings or any of that. They're just terrifying. And now Daniel comes face to face with the great archangel Gabriel. And here's what happens. He's going to explain the dream or the vision. Verse 20, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now, by the way, Media and Persia were, were, were kingdoms at the time of Daniel, but they were not in power, but they were there. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and Greece was also there, but not a major power at the time. And the large horn between its eyes, it's the first king. That's Alexander the Great. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation, but will not have the same power because it's parceled off into four rather than one. In the later part of their reign, which reign? The reign of the four and one of those four. In the later part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding dev- devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the, the vision for it concerns the distant future. Daniel now unlocks some of the underlying characteristics from Gabriel of this Antiochus. But remember, a few times already he said, but this is not just in your recent in near history. This is for the distant future. So Antiochus IV is simply a shadow of one who will come, who is much, much worse, but will be very much like him. He will be fierce of face. He will be skilled in double dealing. He will be a master of political intrigue. He will have a fierce manner and a brilliant mind. He will have great power, but it's not from him. There will be something else empowering him, and we know from the scriptures that is Satan. He will be cruel, and he will be competent. He will be a master in the art of deception. He will magnify himself as if he is someone incredibly great. He will personally attack the prince of peace, Christ. And ultimately, he will be crushed by a force that is not human. Whoa, that's pretty scary. What would you do if you heard that? Well, let's see what Daniel did. Verse 27. This is the last verse. Daniel was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. So Daniel's sick. God gives him a little glimpse into the future and he's sick. By the way, some of us maybe have thought, oh, I wish I knew what the future held. Are you really sure of that? None of us could be trusted to know what the future holds. It would be the worst thing you could ever imagine if you knew really what the future held. There are only very, very, very few people to whom God gives that insight. Daniel was one of them. And what did it do to him? It devastated him, put him in bed. He couldn't get out of bed. Because this is not a pretty picture. 
They will become leaders who are great, who are incredibly, incredibly evil. But one day, they will be the master of all evil. Thankfully, that hasn't happened yet. We have a, we've seen enough in our history. We, some of us in this room here today, some of us in this room here today, you know you've been alive during a Hitler and a Stalin and a Mao and a Pol Pot and a Un, whatever his name is, in North Korea, and now a Putin. These are evil leaders with incredible power. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dead people because of what they did. Oh, we know evil people, but they are only shadows. How do we know? Well, because Jesus told us so. Jesus said these words. This is Matthew chapter 24. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And what happened is Jesus, in the last week of his life, is walking out of Jerusalem, going up this little hillside, looking back, and there's the glorious city of Jerusalem right in front of him with the magnificent temple built by Herod. And his disciples say, hey, Jesus, what's going to happen here? And Jesus launches into his glimpse of the future, which is based on the glimpse God gave to Daniel, which is also based on what God's going to give to John in the book of Revelation. They all sink beautifully. And this is what Jesus said. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many. For false prophets and will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Jesus says over and over and over again, he said, we are most, we are, every one of us are incredibly susceptible to being deceived. In fact, we are walking sponges of deception. That's who we are. Watch out. Watch out. And remember, Antiochus and the Antichrist are masters of deceit, of manipulating people's minds. We live in a world, as you know, where deceit is everywhere. We don't know who in the world to trust. We don't trust politicians. We don't trust the media. We don't trust anybody. And we don't trust pastors. Okay, that's fine as far as I'm concerned. But there's one, one that we can trust, the Word of God. Only one. And, of course, the Holy Spirit of God. That's it. Jesus said, watch out. Why are we so susceptible to deceit? Well, remember the Antiochus? He said he had just kind of normal roots. He got a power, a position that he shouldn't really have had. There's something deep inside the human heart that makes us very susceptible to deception because we have an underdog prejudice. We love rags to riches stories. And we easily, Paul, pray to a victim mentality. That's just part of our nature. So if, someone, if someone's born with a silver spoon in their mouth, we don't trust them. But if someone goes from rags to riches, ooh, that's a different story. We sometimes give them too much trust. Why? Because we're sponges of deception, easily deceived. What about someone who has an enormous ego and a boastful mouth? We more and more today honor such people. But that's what Antiochus was like. And that's what the, the Antichrist will be like. But the Bible says, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Beware of egotistical mouths. That's what he had. 
And what did the Antiochus do? And what will the Antichrist do? Diminished the centrality of God and employed devious methodology. He was skilled at the art of truth twisting and spinning the truth and manipulating people's emotions and skillfully using flattery and scapegoating and and deflecting responsibility. Be careful and be careful of seeming success. We are suckers for success. We're suckers for success in churches. We're suckers for success in in business. We're suckers for success in military things. We're suckers for success in government. Be careful. Remember, Antiochus was very successful. So will the Antichrist be. And usually we define success numerically, not morally. One of my favorite quotes comes from Oz Guinness, the Brit. He said this, In matters of the spirit, nothing fails like success, and nothing succeeds like failure. By the way, we're in the process of picking a new pastor. If you look for an un, just a, a, a string of success, ministerial successes, I say to you, beware, beware. You actually want someone who knows what failure is about. Because with, an, with a string of success, all we think about is, hey, after a while it goes to our head. That's what ego does to us. But failure brings us to our knees and humbles us. You want someone from their knees. Not someone with a string of successes, though I hope there's some of them, but someone who knows the goodness and the grace of God because they've personally experienced it. That's what you want. Because that's very different than the Antichrist. Well, how do we live? Look for characteristics the opposite of the Antichrist or Antiochus for the leaders you follow. And as I said before, be, be, be sensitive to and sickened by abuses of power. In the world in which we live today, when we see abuses of power, the, the, the tendency of, of people in our culture is to respond with fear and hopelessness and loathing and blame shifting. We as Christians, we respond with faith, hope, and love. That's how we respond. It's a different way. Instead of fear, we respond with faith because we know what the end is. We know who wins and we're on the right side. We respond with faith, hope. Why? Because our hope is in, is, is based on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We are the people of hope, not hopelessness. And we don't have to run in fear and loathing because we are the ones who experience the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, what was he like? His roots are from eternity past to eternity future. He was the absolute epitome of one who modeled true humility. Remember his, Paul's words said this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And how did he live his life? Here, the Lord of the universe got down on his feet, got down on his knees, and washed his disciples' feet. That's our Lord. And what motivated him? Ego? No. Self-sacrificing love. Jesus himself said, greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's our Jesus. And he was the embodiment of truth. And his kingdom is unstoppable. 
it will never, ever end. And so in the book of Revelation, we have that marvelous verse, that the kingdom of this world one day will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so this dark, dark chapter of Daniel chapter 8, which gives a picture of, 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 the, of massive abuse of power, which absolutely sickens Daniel and puts him in bed, is not the last word. Interestingly, the last word was actually spoken 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. When he died on the cross, taking all human sin, all human shame, all human guilt on himself, God took all our punishment that we deserved on himself, all of our sin, he took it. And then at the end, after he had said, Father, why do you forsake me? He said, it is. Remember the Bible says he said with a loud voice, here's a man on a cross. I did it. I did it. I have purchased salvation for everyone who will receive it. I did it. And he bowed his head. Father, into my hand, into your hand, I give my spirit. He breathed his last. And three days later, he walked out of a grave, never to die again. That's the side we're on. That's why we live with faith, hope, and love. Not fear, hopelessness, and loathing. Because we're God's children. But we're just as prone as anyone else to forget. We forget so quickly. And so Jesus gave us many things to help us remember. And one of them we're going to remember right now. Jesus, within hours of his crucifixion, he took elements of the Passover dinner. And he said, use these now to remember what I did for you when I died on the cross for your sins. He took the bread and said, this is a reminder of my body. I, gave, I had a real body, Jesus said. I wasn't a ghost. I wasn't Casper the friendly ghost. I, was a, I had a real body. I gave my body for you. And then he took the cup and said, I gave my, I gave my life blood. I gave up my life so I could give you eternal life. And what's our part? Our part is, first of all, I like to say it's four things. First, honesty. God expects that we as human beings will be honest enough to look into a mirror and see our sin. If we can't do that, we're in deep trouble spiritually. God says, you must see who you really are. And then humility. That there's no way you can pay back what we have done to disobey God. There's no way. No matter how many good deeds, how many, much money you give or how much times you go to church, never doesn't matter a bit. Can't pay it back. Because the, 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 the debt is a hundred trillion, 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 trillion dollars. Good luck. That's our debt. And then he says, once you realize that and fall on your knees, what I expect of you is trust. By faith, you will receive a gift that you know you don't deserve. If you do that, you will live a life of gratitude and service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hope is in Jesus in his blood and his righteousness. We have no other hope, but that hope is so substantial, so solid, that we build our whole lives on it, and it's worth every bit of it. As we partake of these elements now, may your Holy Spirit ground us deeply again in the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Amen.